Well, if you can open your Bibles to John chapter 10, uh, we'll be looking at verses 22 to 26 this morning. And as you are uh, turning there, while I was uh, homesick uh, and with my kids in, in recent weeks, uh, we were able to do some, some coloring uh, together. And if I can be honest, I was not impressed with their coloring ability. Uh, they did not stay in the lines or uh, color things in the proper way. The, the sky was green, the grass was red, uh, the water was uh, yellow. Uh, and sometimes they would just color everything in the picture, just a single color. And I'm just like, guys, this, this is really confusing and not true to reality. Uh, and every parent uh, who's colored with their children uh, knows what those pictures look like. Uh, and after they have colored, what do you do with those pictures? You keep them. You hang them up. Yeah, a amen. So even though you're not impressed with their coloring ability, you still treasure those uh, pictures even though they look like abstract art. Uh, and th there, are, th there are certain theological topics uh, that, that sometimes we color uh, as if we are children. Uh, we don't uh, seek t to color with nuance uh, and with clarity. We, we don't try and put uh, the right color in the right space. Uh, we don't want to stay in the lines. And then sometimes uh, we even color the whole picture just one color, right? We, we paint with a, with a broad brush uh, and not a, leaving any room for, for nuance uh, or subtlety in our theology. Uh, and unsurprisingly, uh, when, we, when we color in this way, uh, we do not portray the beauty and glory of God accurately. And when it comes to theology, we have to, to utilize the right colors. We have to, to stay in the lines that God has laid out for us in his word, and uh, especially when we come to, uh, to theological topics that require a lot of nuance uh, and require clarity and where there is a tension uh, between two truths. Uh, and that's one of the things that we're going to look at this morning is where there is a, a tension between two truths that we see in Scripture. What we're going to, to see this morning and what we must color with, with, with nuance and with clarity is this relationship between uh, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And as we embark on this art project, uh, again, we, we must be careful and seek to, uh, to treat it in the same way that Jesus does, but also understand that we can't necessarily treat it the same way that Jesus does, which I'll uh, explain in a bit. Uh, but as we uh, come to John chapter 10 and uh, arrive at verse 22, we are coming to a, a new section in John's gospel. Now, the, the previous uh, section uh, was a really long section. Uh, it began in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, uh, with, with the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles, uh, which takes place in, in late September, early October. Uh, and that section began in chapter 7, verse 1, and it continued all the way up to where we finished last week. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 21. Uh, and what we're going to be looking at uh, today and in, in coming weeks is this section that, that's really short when it comes to the, the, how kind of John has organized his gospel. Uh, but it begins in verse 22, uh, and it ends at the end of the chapter uh, in verse 42. Uh, and it takes place uh, at the Feast of Dedication, uh, which you probably know as Hanukkah. 
Uh, and uh, as you're probably familiar, that feast takes place uh, in the month of December. So late, uh, mid to late December. Uh, and so there's about a two-month gap uh, between uh, verse 21 and verse 22. Uh, and it is presumed that uh, Jesus, uh, since both of those scenes are in Jerusalem, that he stayed that two months in Jerusalem uh, and that he was there preaching and teaching and healing. Uh, and uh, this portion of John's gospel, uh, verses 22 to 42, this is going to be uh, the pinnacle uh, of Jesus' self-revelation, his self-disclosure to the, the Jewish religious leaders. Okay, he, he's going to, uh, they're going to come to him with questions, as we're going to see here, uh, and he's going to reveal to them all that he is and, and uh, all that he will do. And so uh, in this, uh, this section, what we see is uh, the setting is established for us in verses 22 to 24. If you would look at those with me, it says, at, at, the time, the feast, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, uh, and Jesus was walking in the temple uh, in the colonnade of Solomon. Uh, and so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Uh, and uh, the, the, the key is that they come to Jesus and, and they're like, hey, just, just give us the truth. Tell us plainly, what, uh, who are you? Uh, and uh, Jesus is going to, to give a response to them. Uh, and his response is going to begin in verse 25 and it's going to uh, go, go for a bit. And we're not going to look at it all this morning. Uh, but uh, what he's going to to do, and they're asking him, who are you? He's going to weave in the, these really big concepts. Uh, and again, they don't even realize what they're asking, but Jesus is going to give them a lot more than they bargained for. Uh, and he's going to, to point to, to unbelief. He's going to point to salvation. He's going to point to uh, his relationship uh, with the Father, his own deity. Uh, and we're going to look at all of these uh, in uh, this week and subsequent weeks. But uh, for, this, uh, for our purposes this morning, we're just going to look at, uh, at unbelief. And I know in your, in your bulletin, I think the, the sermon uh, portion has verse 22 to 30. And I just realized that wasn't happening. So... Uh, I, I narrowed it down. We're just going to look at verses 22 to 26 this morning. Uh, and in these verses, we're going to see how we should understand uh, and speak plainly about unbelief, uh, yet with both clarity and with nuance. And, and how should we understand uh, unbelief within the heart of an individual? And, and when, when we're speaking about unbelief here, uh, I'm not speaking about like little crumbs of little bits of doubt uh, in a believer. That's not the, the unbelief that I'm discussing. Uh, the unbelief that, that Jesus is addressing and confronting uh, with his audience uh, that he is immediately speaking to, uh, th this is a, a hard-hearted rejection of who Jesus is and all that he has said. And th this is a, a, an understanding uh, of the, the gospel message. This is an understanding of all that Jesus claims to be and an absolute rejection of that. Uh, and Jesus is going to, uh, to speak and, and confront uh, those who have come up to him. And as we examine this passage this morning, we're going to see uh, three important nuances concerning unbelief that we need to hold together and in tension with one another. Okay? Uh, and, and the first nuance that we, uh, we, we need to make note of is, is going to be in the verses that we just read, verses 22 to 24, and, and we could put it this way, that, that unbelief often feigns confusion. 
Unbelief often feigns confusion. And as we just read those verses, uh, they, they set the scene and they reveal much about the unbelieving heart. As we, we see in this scene, Jesus is, is there, it, it's wintertime, uh, and he is uh, speaking uh, with, uh, or he was walking in uh, Solomon's portico, which is this really long, uh, kind of 200 yards of covered colonnade on the east side of the temple. Uh, it's a great place to be in wintertime because you're protected from the wind that, that blows uh, from the, uh, into the east, uh, and uh, this is where it was easy to gather in the wintertime. And so when Jesus was, was walking along there, what we see is that uh, there was a, a group of people who came, and the idea is they surrounded him. So he's walking, they surround him, uh, and, and they approach him, uh, and uh, we're going to see that they are coming with an agenda. Okay, so Jesus didn't summon them. They, come, they came to him, uh, and uh, they, their agenda is going to be revealed uh, in their uh, question and in their request. Uh, and so they come in, this question that they ask in actuality in the Greek is, how long will you take up our soul? Right? How, how long will you take it up or, or take it away? Uh, and the implication is that Jesus is not being fair. Right? So how long are you going to, to have our souls, in, in essence, away from us? Uh, and, and most translations uh, put this as, how long will you keep us in suspense? Right, you're holding out on us, Jesus. When are you going to tell us the truth? And then they make this request. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And they make this request because Jesus has not publicly declared uh, to Israel that he is the Messiah. You're like, wait a second, how, how can that be the case? Like, we've been studying through John's gospel, and he's making all of these proclamations everywhere. Well, he's used lots of titles, that he's the Son of God, that he's the Son of Man, uh, that, uh, and, and he's pointed to all of these truths, but he has not explicitly stated that he is the Christ. Now, he's done that privately. He, he spoke and revealed that he was the Christ back in John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, but that was in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the Samaritan woman. He also revealed it to the man who was born blind in John chapter 9. Now, but he has not made a huge public declaration that he is the Christ. Uh, and he, he hasn't used this term because, as we've said in the past, that, that term and that expectation of the Christ or the Messiah was loaded with implications. Uh, and, and what the Jews wanted was a conquering hero. Right? If Jesus comes and he says that he is the Christ— they would immediately put a crown on his head and said, okay, let's march on Rome. And in fact, that's what they wanted to do back in John chapter 6. Remember after he fed uh, the, the thousands of people? Uh, and they, they saw what he did, and they're like, we need to make this guy king. And so Jesus says, well, no. And he, he went away from there. Uh, he avoided the crown at that time. And, and so that's what uh, we are seeing here. The issue here. It's not really that the Jews were uncertain about the claims that, that Jesus was making. So, so they're coming, uh, and they're saying, well, tell us plainly. But they knew who Jesus was claiming to be. And so these men have, have gathered around Jesus. They are not skeptics searching for answers. They are scoffers in search of ammunition. That, that is why they are coming and approaching and surrounding him 
here and now. They are, they are lawyers looking to establish a case against Jesus, literally. These are like fishermen testing bait to see what, uh, what hook and what combination of bait is going to work to catch the fish that they want. These are hunters who are seeking to ensnare their prey. Something similar happened back in the Old Testament with the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 6 says, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. And these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so something similar is taking place here. In essence, the, the, the Jewish religious leaders are, have contemplated among themselves, how do we ensnare Jesus? How, how do we bring a case against him? Just like they did with Daniel. And they say, you know what? Let's go ask him about whether or not he's the Messiah. Just speak plainly. Why are you avoiding this? That's what they do. They are, they are feigning confusion and using it as a smokescreen to bring accusations against Jesus. They're trying to, to trip him up. And many people today do this exact same thing. They, they have endless questions uh, about minute details of the Bible. What about you know this and what about that uh, and yet the the biggest issue that the bible presents us with is the person of jesus well, what are we going to do with him is he the son of god or is he not did he rise from the dead or did he not right because if jesus rose from the dead then everything else that he did and said and claimed was true and if he didn't rise from the dead then we can ignore all of it. There's no neutral ground. So don't get hung up on the little tiny bits and pieces over here. Uh, What are you going to do with Christ? One well-known pastor uh, described this reality in in this way. As as he was writing about skeptics who stumble over uh, creation and evolution, he says that the skeptical inquirer does not need to accept uh, any of these positions on creation in order to embrace the Christian faith. Remember, he or she should concentrate on uh, weighing the, the central claims of Christianity and only after drawing conclusions about the person of Christ, the resurrection, and the central tenets of the Christian message could one think about the various options with regard to creation uh, and evolution. Uh, again, like, don't, don't get caught up in those. First and foremost, who is Jesus? Will you look to him in faith? And again, unbelief often feigns confusion. Is there sometimes genuine confusion scattered among unbelief? Yeah, uh, but sometimes that's just used, again, as a, as a smokescreen. This is an important truth for us to keep in mind. When a, when a friend or family member begins to bring up endless questions, it's good to, to answer them. I'm not saying ig- just ignore their questions and say that they don't matter. No, answer their questions to the best of their ability. But every time that you have that conversation, what should you do? Get to the gospel, right? Work your way there and say, but how are you going to respond to Christ? What do you think about him and his claims? He's the biggest stumbling block to faith. And we must come to grips with who he is first and foremost. Because if you place your faith and trust in Christ, guess what will happen with all of the other smaller things? 
they'll fall into place. But oftentimes people want the, the small things to fall in place without the big foundation being laid. And we just have to say, no, no, that's not, how, that's not how it works. Nothing else is going to make sense in Scripture if you are still rejecting Jesus. And you have no need to obey anything else in Scripture if you are rejecting him. That, that is your greatest need, uh, is to wrestle with who he is and then ultimately to submit your life to him. And by bringing the issue back to the gospel, each conversation, you shift the issue away from the smokescreen of confusion and back to what the issue truly is, and that's unbelief. And this is the first nuance that we are presented with in this passage, that unbelief often comes feigning confusion. But then secondly, we're going to see in verse 25 and the first part of verse 26, that unbelief has a divine component. If you look at this with me. So the, these men come to Jesus and say, how long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us plainly if you are the Christ. And look at Jesus' answer. He says, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Uh, and so uh, in in answering the question that they bring to his attention, uh, and I guess I mislabeled the verses there. It's verses 25 and 26. Uh, or I guess, no, the first part of, where am I? I'm lost. Okay, I included 27 in this passage, and I didn't mark that down. All right, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, unbelief has a divine component. So Jesus is answering uh, and speaking plainly to him exactly what they requested of him. Uh, and uh, over the course of, of John's gospel uh, and over the course of his ministry, uh, Jesus has made so clear exactly who he is and what he is claiming. And that's where his response is. And when they say, hey, speak plainly, and Jesus' response is really simple. I have. Uh, I have spoken very clearly over and over and over again about who he is and what he has come to do. Uh, and in addition to his words, uh, Jesus just points to his miracles. He, he points to his works. And he says, all of the works that I've done point to who I am. That they bear witness, they testify about who Jesus is. And their testimony is loud and clear. Uh, and uh, what's amazing is that, so this, this group of religious leaders is, is coming and asking this question, but throughout John's gospel, what we've seen is many others who are not among the, the religious leaders uh, are coming to the right conclusion about Jesus. Now, back in John chapter 5, uh, uh, or I guess you can say it this way, the, the works were never the issue. Okay, no one could deny the works that he was doing. Back in John chapter 5, uh, after Jesus had healed the man uh, who was... Uh, uh, a paralytic, uh, this, and he is seen walking uh, by the religious leaders. The religious leaders couldn't disprove that the miracle had happened, and so they began to, to persecute Jesus for basically doing miracles on the Sabbath. They're like, really? That's what you're, you're grasping at? Uh, that he's breaking the Sabbath by, by healing and performing miracles? Uh, and so they don't come to the right conclusion. They can't deny the works, but they come to the wrong conclusion. In, in chapter 7, uh, verse 31, many of the people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Kind of what, how high of an expectation do you have for the, the Christ, the Messiah, if uh, he's expected to do even more than what Jesus has? 
Again, there, there's, a, there's a doubt and a skepticism, and rightly so. In essence, the conclusion that the people in chapter 7 come to is Jesus has to be the Christ because look at all that he's doing. Then in John chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, about the, after the, the healing of the man who was born blind, that some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. And so they said uh, again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And again, the, the man who was born blind is suddenly able to see more clearly than those who were seeing. And the blind man says, he's a prophet. Like he, he is somebody. Uh, again, this is the right conclusion. These are, this is the, the testimony of the miracles of Jesus. And the miracles of Jesus make it clear who he is. They testify about him. But, but there are still many who do not believe in Jesus. And this is what Jesus is addressing in verse 26. So the, the verse begins with a, with a Greek word that is used to as a very strong contrasting word. All right, so the, there's the, the last statement that was, was made that was about the, the, the works of Jesus. The works of Jesus testify about him, but you are not believing. And that's the, the emphasis. And Jesus then explains why they are not believing in him. And he gives a because statement. If you look there, he said, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And what Jesus says here, he's, he's pointing back to the beginning of John chapter 10, where we had this imagery of, of sheep and shepherd. Uh, and that imagery returns, uh, again, which, which makes me also think that the people that Jesus is speaking to right here and right now were also present at the beginning of the chapter and in that discussion two months ago. Right? He immediately goes back to that conversation uh, and is explaining things here. And Jesus' answer here does not immediately point uh, to the people that he is speaking to. His answer uh, stretches beyond them and it points to heaven. And he emphasizes the divine component of unbelief. And this is similar to what Jesus said back in John chapter 6. If you keep your finger here and just turn back a few pages. In John chapter 6, again, after uh, Jesus had fed uh, the 5,000 uh, with bread and, and fish, uh, they, they search him out and find him, uh, and uh, Jesus uh, gives the bread of life discourse. And so John chapter 6, verse 35, uh, he, he's in the process of teaching, and he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Right? So this is a whoever comes is, is going to be satisfied. Whoever comes is going to be saved. But look at what Jesus immediately says after that. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And then he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So that the flow of argument is what Jesus is saying here, is that He's proclaiming, whoever comes to me will receive life, but you're not coming. Uh, and the reason for that is you have, in essence, been given uh, by uh, God the Father. And as we, we studied through that portion in John chapter 6, we saw that the, the triune God is responsible for salvation uh, and has purpose to save uh, a people for his own glory. 
that God the Father is the architect of our salvation. He has planned it in eternity past, electing people to life. God the Son is the one who accomplishes our salvation. Who's the, he is the one who uh, lived and died and rises again from the dead for his people. And then the Spirit of God, sent by the Father and the Son, comes and applies what the, the Son has accomplished uh, into the, the hearts and minds of the people. And the Holy Spirit is the one who takes our salvation from being up in heaven down to being here on the earth and in our lives. And the implication back in John 6 is that those who were not believing in Jesus uh, were not coming to him in faith because they were not among those whom the Father had called and given to the Son. And Jesus explained their, uh, their unbelief in connection with God's big picture plan. And the same emphasis is being made here. But, but here's, here's a very important nuance. We have to be careful with Jesus' statement here. Okay? Uh, th- this is not for us mortals to play with. Only God is able to speak about unbelief in this way. Jesus pulls back the curtain of divine omniscience and, and he reveals truth that none of us have access to. Right? None of us can speak in this way and describe somebody as being unbelieving because they have not been chosen. Jesus is able to speak this way. We cannot, and we dare not. The sheep of Christ are known by Christ, but the sheep don't know the extent of the flock. And we will not know the extent of the flock until uh, we uh, are in heaven. So we, can, we, we have to be careful in how we, we fill in with color here. And, and just think with me for a moment. Two conclusions uh, that the early church might have come to erroneously if we, if we just start making assessments about who is called of God and who is not. Think what the early church might have concluded about uh, this zealous young Pharisee named Saul. He's persecuting the church dragging Christians from their homes, hauling them off to prison, and some of them won't come out of prison. Well, we have to understand that. Well, what might the early, chink, uh, early church think about this man who is persecuting them? He, he's not among the elect. God's going to judge him. No, God's going to save him and use him. That's what he's going to do. Let me tell you about another man in the early church that the early church might have jumped to the wrong conclusion about. A man named Nicholas, who appears in Acts chapter 6, is one of the first deacons appointed by the apostles. That man, Nicholas, church history and scripture tell us that he was a false convert. That the apostles unknowingly put in a place of leadership, and because he was in that position of leadership, he was able to lead many astray with false teaching. We can't jump to certain conclusions about who is and who will or will not be in the kingdom of God. Flashback 10 years. Did anybody expect Kanye West to come to faith in Christ? Did anybody have that on their salvation bingo card? No. We don't know how God is going to work. We don't know who he's going to save and who he's not going to save. God can speak definitively about that, but we have to be very, very cautious in doing that. We understand that there is a divine component 
to unbelief, but we can't speak with clarity about it. And we can't draw lines as God does. But many, many unbelievers have taken an offense at this divine component of unbelief. They argue that God cannot necessarily hold people accountable uh, if he has played a part uh, in uh, their unbelief. Some believers have made the same objection. How can a, a holy God hold individuals accountable if he has already determined who will be saved and who will not be saved? Well, uh, this is a much bigger discussion. I'm approaching it a little bit here. That is the exact question that the Apostle Paul anticipates and answers in Romans 9. I would encourage you to go and, and read through there, but we're going we're gonna to keep marching forward, and I'm going to answer it uh, briefly uh, here. Unbelievers have objected to this divine component of unbelief. Some believers have objected to it, and still other believers have twisted this into an excuse for disobedience. Right? If, if salvation and unbelief is just in already decided by God, then I don't need to go and share the gospel. That's an error. That's a, using an excuse uh, for my disobedience. Because, yes, th- is there a divine component to unbelief? Absolutely. But what have we been commanded to do? To go and preach the gospel. We don't know who's going to respond or when they will respond. But what are we commanded to do? To go and proclaim, to go and preach. And so we have to obey and not fall into all of these uh, errors uh, and excesses. And all of these errors focus too much upon the divine component of unbelief and not enough upon the truth that is inseparable and serves to balance out our theology, right? Again, there's that tendency to take the picture and just color it all with one color. And we can't do that because that leads us off into error. So there's another truth that we're going to see here, a third one, uh, that we have to hold in tension with the divine component of unbelief. And you can probably guess what this third component is. If there's a divine component, uh, the third component is going to be uh, unbelief has a human component. Uh, and uh, it's going to be seen uh, in verse 27. Uh, I think in the outline of the notes, you'll have verse 26b, but it's verse 27. Let's look at that verse. Jesus immediately then says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so again, track through the the logic of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus just made, uh, or he is in the process of making a contrast. Uh, He has said, uh, they are not a part of his sheep. That's why they are not responding. And now he immediately begins to describe his sheep. And how does he describe what his sheep do? They hear his voice. Now in uh, in the, the Hebrew mindset, Hearing is inseparable from obedience, right? If you do not obey, you haven't heard. And every parent said, amen, uh, right? Uh, and that, that's the reality, right? When your kid is just ignoring you, they may be hearing your voice, but they are not responding, right? Which is that you're like, you're not hearing me. Uh, and so what Jesus makes known, if his sheep, what will they do? They will hear, and the implication is they will obey his voice. And his sheep know him, and he knows them. And then they will follow him. Now, think this through in terms of the implications of of unbelief, right? If those who are among Jesus' sheep uh, will hear and obey his voice and follow him, what will uh, those who are not among Jesus' sheep do? 
Well, they won't hear, they won't obey, and they will not follow. That is the the implication, and that is how Jesus is emphasizing the the human component here. How, How is it being revealed that the people that he is speaking to are not among his sheep? They're not hearing and responding. They are acting as if Jesus is some other shepherd. He's not their shepherd. They are different sheep. And the indictment that Jesus is making here is that those whom he is speaking to right now are not hearing and responding to his voice as their shepherd. Uh, But uh, Jesus is always giving out a call. He is constantly calling people uh, to respond to him in faith. He is constantly saying, look to me, trust in me, forsake everything else, and you will have eternal life. Right? Over and over again in John's gospel, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. A whosoever. Jesus is constantly making this appeal. John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is a whosoever. The, the, the onus is to respond in faith to Christ. And then famously, not in John's gospel, but we could go a multitude of places. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. One of the uh, greatest invitations of our Savior. It says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And and so Jesus is indicting Israel for rejecting his continuous call. He's constantly calling to them and saying, turn to me in faith. Come, turn back. And as we've been reading through Isaiah... Well, what is Isaiah the prophet constantly doing with Israel? What is he calling them to? Repentance. Just turn back to the God that you are turning away from. Find rest and peace and trust in him. And so Jesus has been making that call constantly, and they have continually rejected it. But Jesus' sheep, they do hear his voice. They do obey, and they do follow him. And so what we see in this passage, and what we see really in all of Scripture, are these twin truths that are presented to us here. That God is sovereign uh, over all of human history, and yet man is also responsible and free to act according to his nature. So one theologian puts it this way, that every human action in the course of history has a dual explanation one divine and one human. Okay, let's, let's look at a couple examples of this. Turn over with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Paul and Timothy had came, come to Philippi, and verse 13 says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening 
And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And so just think through, what is it that takes place here? There's a divine component uh, and a human component, right? And let's talk through the human component. Don't, don't miss out what did Paul and Luke and Timothy come and do. They came and they proclaimed. The gospel was preached. And then Lydia heard. She had to, to hear the message. And then the invisible portion that we wouldn't necessarily know about apart from Scripture, apart from God pulling back the divine curtain, we would miss this step because it's not visible to us. But what Luke records is that the Lord opened her heart. That happens, and then something visible to us happens. And what was that? A response of faith. That, that's what we see taking place. Again, th there is a divine component and a human component. And this works both for salvation and for judgment. And back in the Old Testament, you look at uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, there was a certain individual uh, who was hardened by God, but also who hardened his own heart. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, uh, during the uh, the Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. This is what God says. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do uh, before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. But then look over to chapter 8, verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And so just think about that. Who is speaking? Who's making the proclamation? The magicians, who are not believers, uh, are saying, I think this is God. This is, this is something. Uh, and what does Pharaoh do? But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, and the idea, uh, there's multiple places throughout this whole narrative where uh, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and then it just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, and again, what we see is that for every uh, human action, there is a divine component uh, and uh, a human component. But, but how does all of this uh, reconcile together? Uh, to quote uh, another theologian, D.A. Carson, he explained this tension. Number one, that God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or maligned. Okay, so God is absolutely sovereign, but doesn't uh, minimize or malign human responsibility. And secondly, human beings are morally responsible creatures. And they significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth. And they are rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. Meaning God is not dependent upon uh, our decisions and choices. He knows what is going to, to take place. Uh, and so uh, God's sovereignty, let me put it this way, this is going to be some, some philosophical language, but it's, if you're, these, is, these are complicated truths. We, we need the right colors uh, in the right places. God's sovereignty is both the, the primary and the remote cause of unbelief. Uh, it is primary in the sense that God is sovereign over all things. And it is remote or distant uh, in the sense that God does not make people's decisions for them. So God's sovereignty, primary and remote, and human responsibility is both secondary and proximate. 
the proximate cause for human unbelief. So human choices are freely made without compulsion, uh, but those freely made choices are also the means that God uses. So, so they're the secondary means uh, for uh, or explanation for things. Uh, and human choices, uh, uh, human responsibility is also the proximate or the near cause of uh, explaining why a decision was made or something happens. Okay, I know we're bouncing around. Uh, if you're there, or turn back with me to Acts chapter 2, uh, the, the passage that, that Vincent preached on uh, several weeks back, uh, the, the, the sermon of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter blends all of this together. Uh, he's going to, to emphasize a divine component. He's going to emphasize uh, a human component, uh, and both of them are going to be true. There's a, there's a tension here uh, that he holds perfectly. Beginning in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Now, as you yourselves know, there's another layer of causality, right? He says that who was performing the miracles? God was performing it through Jesus. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to, number one, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That, that's the primary uh, cause. What's the number one reason Jesus was crucified? According to the plan of God. But then there's secondary causes. And even more than that. So delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, the Jews wouldn't crucify Jesus themselves. Why? Because it wasn't according to the law. So, so they still wanted him dead. So what did they do? They, they arranged to have the Romans kill him. So who bears responsibility? <laughs> the Romans, but also the Jews for conspiring with all of these false accusations. What conclusion does Pontius Pilate come to about Jesus? He's innocent. And yet, what does he still do? He violates his own conscience, right? He comes to a, one conclusion and does something else, but that was the equipping hour. Uh, but starting to, to see this, there's multiple layers of causality here. And we have to have nuance and hold all of these things in tension. And, and this tension that is created helps us uh, to, to stay upright on a razor's edge. There, there's danger on both sides. Okay, if we paint this picture all one color, whether it's emphasizing the divine component or the human component, we fall to our deaths. These errors will lead us astray. And we have to constantly hold these truths in tension. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. And as Charles Spurgeon has said, uh, I have no need to reconcile friends. And he said that directly about this tension between these two theological truths. And we have been instructed concerning how to, to nuance this discussion of unbelief. Jesus has, has spoken plainly, and he's confronted uh, these people who have come to, to question and interrogate him. He has spoken plainly, and we have seen that unbelief often feigns confusion, that unbelief has a divine component and unbelief has a human component. And all of this serves to show us uh, how we need God to work in our lives if we are going to be saved. Right? If we are going to have a relationship 
with him, he has to work. Because we are all sinners who have wandered away from him. We've all gone contrary to God's will. And his judgment for our rebellion is righteous and just. And our only hope is to look to him in faith. Even as we saw uh, David pray in Psalm 51, right? Wasn't saying, God, I'm going to try real hard. Can you get me the rest of the way? Not it. Well, we have to understand uh, that the good shepherd calls each of us uh, to respond to him. And there, there's a whole divine side that we don't know about and we can't really speak to. What we are charged with, first and foremost, is how are we going to respond? You might ask, how do, how do I know if I am among Jesus' sheep? I said earlier, right? Jesus has knowledge we don't have. But we are to examine the, the human side. That is the question that we all face and we all have to answer. Will I hear and obey the voice of Jesus? Will I follow him? That's the question. That's where we, that's where we need to focus in on. There's greater mysteries out there, but Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to God. And we need to entrust those to him. C.S. Lewis once said, there are only two sorts of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Either we submit to and follow God, or he'll say, okay, I will allow you to wander away from me. And our judgment comes upon us at our own behest out of our own decisions. And, and again, the, the big question is what type of person will we be? One, one who says to God, thy will be done, or one to whom God says, thy will be done. That, that's that's the, the heart of the gospel, and that's what Jesus continues to bring the issue back to, even as he interacts with these people who are hard-hearted. But he's not going to stop here in this discussion. They ask him to speak plainly, and he is going to. Uh, and his words are going to be a, a tremendous comfort uh, to uh, tremendous confrontation to those who are questioning him in the here and now. But they're also going to be a tremendous comfort to uh, his people uh, at that point in time and to us now uh, and in the 21st century. And we're going to continue to look at that as we march through John 10. But let's go to the Lord in prayer and in praise, thanking him for his word this morning. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are able to transform hearts and minds. And even as we look 